No, it's not Sam. <laughs> Sam and Kelly are out of town this weekend celebrating a little getaway. And uh, as a consequence, um, your punishment is... No, he had called me a couple of weeks ago, and he asked me, he says, would you be available to preach July 22nd? And I said, of course. And uh, I thought to myself, in the deep recesses of my mind, this is kind of like calling the retired quarterback <laughs> while the quarterback takes the bench, calling the retired quarterback to come through that tunnel one more time and hit that sign, play like a champion today, and run out on the field and save the day. Um, this last Tuesday we had an elders meeting and one of the elders asked who's preaching this Sunday and I said I am and then Lil Kozak turned to me and says yes thanks for taking care of that for us this week. And then I realized I'm not that retired quarterback, I'm Rudy. <laughs> it's the final home game, we're way ahead, nobody's going to care if you put their jersey on and get onto the field so... As been noted by Sam and others in the past, my tendency is to somehow work the subject of death into my sermons because, after all, I'm somewhat weird and have been obsessed with the subject for a long time, and I don't want to disappoint uh, this morning. So I want to tell you the story of two lifelong friends, Frank and Leonard. And Frank fell ill. And when it became clear that he was dying, Leonard visited him every day. One day, Leonard said, Frank... We both love playing golf all of our lives. We started playing together after high school. Please do me one favor when you get to heaven. Somehow, you must let me know if there's golf in heaven. And Frank looked up at Leonard from his deathbed and he said, Leonard, you've been my best friend for many years. If it's at all possible, I'll do this favor for you. And then, shortly later, Frank died. A few weeks later, Leonard's sleeping in a deep sleep, and he was wakened by a blinding flash of light and a voice calling out to him, Leonard, who is it? Asked Leonard as he sat bolt right up into bed. Who is it? Leonard, it's me, Frank. You're not Frank. Frank just died. I'm telling you, it's me, Frank, insisted the voice. Frank, where are you? I'm in heaven. And I have some really good news and a little bad news. Tell me the good news first, Leonard said. Well, the good news, Frank said, with joy and enthusiasm, is that there is golf in heaven. Better yet, all of our old buddies who have died are here too. Even better than that, we're all young again. Better still, it's always summertime and it never rains. And best of all, we can play golf all we want and never get tired, and we get to play with all of the greats of the past. That's fantastic, said Leonard. It's beyond my wildest dreams. So what's the bad news? Well, you're in my foursome Saturday. As I've said, I'm often teased and chided particularly by my son about my fascination and obsession with the subject of death. Yesterday morning, I learned that a college classmate of mine, Bob Lindman, this is a picture of Bob and his wife Laura, he died late Friday night in Kansas City after uh, complications from quintuple bi uh, heart bypass surgery. Bob and I are the same age. He was a graduate of Elkhart Central High School, played football there, and then he 
Graduated in 1967, went down to Harding College where I attended and played football there. As a matter of fact, I didn't tell us the first service, but one of the first encounters I had with Bob at college was when he was throwing rocks into a fish pond, and my wife thought that was cruel and yelled at him. But we got that all straightened out. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, for about a year in the early 70s, Bob and his wife were, came here and attended this congregation uh, as he went to what we had at that time called South Bend School of Personal Evangelism. But then they moved on to other parts of the country, and I haven't seen either one of them since those early 70s, but we became friends on Facebook again, and, and I keep seeing Bob's post, uh, and even this past week after his surgery, he was posting video of him in his hospital bed talking about how well he was doing and uh, the great nurses he had, and there was a video of his, he's a real estate agent, and he uh, showed his office wishing him to get well, and then I saw a post from his children saying that uh, Friday his lungs were filling with fluid, and uh, before Friday night passed, Bob had died. So honestly, learning of his passing was very depressing to me yesterday. Now this isn't a new preoccupation. And it's not because I'm now in the age range of those most likely to appear in obituaries. I think more than anything else, it's because I began observing death and its effects at an early age and in a variety of circumstances. I was 10 years old when my uncle Bob Vataw died at the age of 42. Now, although at that time of my life, 42 sounded like uh, an advanced age, I now know how young he was when he left us. And he was, was the first funeral I ever attended. And rather than being grief-stricken as a 10-year-old, I found myself an observer viewing his body in the casket. And, and to be honest with you, I stared at it so intently I could have sworn I saw it move. Uh, and watching my family going through the grieving process, shedding tears as they grieved. And it's my first recollection of ever seeing my dad shed tears. Two years later, my family was vacationing in Arkansas, when they got a call to come back to Indiana, my grandmother Collins, who is Mima's mother, had been in failing health for some time and had lapsed into a coma and was not expected to recover. I remember being with my mother and her family as we gathered in my grandparents' living room where they had her in a bed in the living room. As she was in a coma, keeping vigil and observing my grandmother pass from this life into eternity. Her death was the first time I witnessed the exact moment of death. She was only five years older than I am now. They lived just a block and a half from the city cemetery in Elwood where she would be buried. And I observed the effect of her passing that it had on my grandfather, who had struggled with drinking for most of his life. And I learned that each day after her passing, he would walk down to the cemetery and stand at her grave grieving. And it's my understanding that he stopped drinking the day that she died until he passed away less than two years later. Her death had a profound impact on his life. But these were older people, especially when you're young and just barely a teenager. But then on October 31st, 1963, I was a ninth grader coming out of school at the end of the day in Kokomo. My best friend at the time was a kid by the name of Mike Kane. And uh, he was going steady, as we used to call it. Now the kids say they're in a relationship. But he was going steady with a girl named Susie Worland. This was back in the days when boys and girls exchanged metal dog tags. Now, some of you remember that, right? Not many of you, but some of you do, uh, as a sign that they were going steady. 
Now, I don't think Susie cared too much for me. She hardly ever talked to me. But that day, as we were coming out of the school doors, we walked out together, and she began engaging me in a conversation and telling me how she was going to Indianapolis that, day, that evening to go and see the show Holiday on Ice at the Coliseum at the fairgrounds in Indianapolis. And she was all excited and looking forward to it, and I began to think that I had been wrong all along about how she viewed me, and we could continue this breakthrough in the days to come. What we didn't know that afternoon was that the ice show at the fairgrounds would begin about 45 minutes late for some reason. And during the finale of the show, 10 minutes before it was to end, an audience of 4,500, there was a rusty propane gas tank that began to leak. And eventually, the fumes would come into contact with an electric popcorn popper. And the resulting explosion killed 74 people, including Susie, her 15-year-old sister, and her grandmother. It was then that I was impressed by the fact that no one knows what the next day will bring. Since 1976, I've conducted well over 100 funeral services. I've been with grieving families who were dealing with the deaths of loved ones, both expectedly and unexpectedly, and this subject continues to be a fascination to me, even as I move closer and closer to my own appointed time, whenever that might be. It must be the reason why I have such a rosy disposition. <laughs> a few years ago, before I retired from the government, from the IRS, I was offered a post-retirement job by a prominent local funeral director. <laughs> I didn't take it, and he has since passed on. Now, lest you think that I have come to you this morning with a real downer of a sermon, that's not my intent at all. Rather... It's to make us all aware that unlike God that we worship this morning, we are bounded by time. Just think about that for a moment. We worship a God who had no beginning and no end. Time for him is meaningless. Peter warned Christians almost 2,000 years ago, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. But we are not the creator. We are the creation. We have a beginning and an end. Our allotted time on earth is confined. We have boundaries of time. And reading through the Old Testament, we find that as sin increased among the creation, human ages continued to decline and diminish until finally the psalmist writes in Psalm 90, verse 10, Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. The National Center for Health Statistics published in 2015 that the average lifespan now for a male in the United States is 78.74 years. That means if I'm average, I've got nine years left on the earth. But how quickly nine years will pass. It was just nine years ago that Barack Obama was inaugurated the 44th president of the United States. It was just nine years ago that Chelsea Sully Sullenberger landed U.S. Airways Flight 1549 on the Hudson River after being downed by a flock of geese. It was just nine years ago today that Microsoft released Windows 7. <laughs> nine years is nothing. And I may be blessed with extraordinary genetics. My mother's last surviving sister was 96 when she passed away. Her last brother was 93 when he passed away. 
Today my mother is 92 and still drives like a teenager. <laughs> so maybe I get another 24 or 25 years. What does that mean? It means I cannot count any of that. James exhorts Christians in James chapter 4 beginning in verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. When we're young and we're vibrant, we think we'll last forever. But none of us knows what tomorrow will bring. And so that way too long introduction brings me to the verse that I want to make central to this morning's message. It is at the midpoint of our scriptures. Psalms 113 through Psalms 118 comprise a wonderful six-psalm praise to God called the Egyptian Hallel. In Hebrew, Hallel means praise. These six psalms were sung during the main Jewish holidays, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Psalm 118 was most likely sung by Jesus himself at that last Passover meal with his apostles. And in Psalm 118, verse 24, which Jesus probably sang on the night of his betrayal, we find these words. This is the day the Lord has brought about. We will be happy and rejoice in it. You and I are not promised tomorrow. We've already lived yesterday, but it is today and that is a gift that God has given us, and the psalmist declares we will be happy and rejoice in it. This is not a natural reaction to our present-day circumstances. I confess, I do not spring out of bed each morning and shout, This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Do you do that? I didn't think so. I've been very unpracticed in approaching each new day with this kind of resolve and determination. I'm more likely to look at the clock and think, why can't I sleep one more hour? Or get this cat off of me so I can sleep another hour. <laughs> or I don't want to go to that appointment this morning. Or why am I not going to Cracker Barrel for breakfast? Or what do you mean you've sold out of cinnamon crunch bagels? But those early in the day challenges are very trite and silly. I know that for some, serious illness and unwell body are constant drags on any enthusiasm for getting up and greeting the day. For others, just trying to subsist and meet living's basic necessities or worries that attend you when you lay down at night and get up in the morning. For some, continued battles with weaknesses of the flesh and seeming to find no way out and to feel clean and pure again are an anchor that you're dragging around continually. For some, a marriage that began with so much hope and love and optimism has turned dry and broken and feeble and appears to have no hope of ever being renewed or even surviving. For some, a constant battle with depression creates a struggle that you can't really understand to get from one activity of the day to the next. And if you didn't enter this sermon depressed, I have a feeling I may have brought you down with this cataloging of struggles that pervade any community, even the community of God's people. So how do we counter this and begin to reverse the, the tide of our individual battles? I think the answer is found in this Hallel in Psalm 118, verse 24. Frankly, I'm partial to the King James Version translation of it, which is, 
Today is the day the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. First of all, we're dealing with today, not yesterday, not tomorrow, not 10 years ago or 15 years into the future, today. One part of the psalmist admonition is to focus on today. I find it interesting to contemplate how differently I would view things that occupy my life daily if I knew that today was my last day in this life. Would I still have my window coverings draped in black crepe simply because Notre Dame football has not had a national championship since 1988? (laughs) Would I spend my last day constantly checking Facebook to see how many likes I got over some witty thing that I'd posted? Would I get all bent out of shape because of the elderly man plotting with his card at Martin's keeps moving just far enough to the left that I can't get around him without running in to the woman backing up in her shopping scooter with that annoying beep beep noise? Would I spend time sitting in front of the TV set watching news about the insanity of humanity and our corrupt politicians and lament about how this country is not what it was when I was growing up? Or you name the countless items of meaningless trivia that seems to consume the entirety of each of our normal days. No, I don't think I would spend my last day consumed with such trivia if I knew it was my last day. What should I be focused on instead? Well, first of all, understanding and recognizing this day is a gift from God. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes states it rather brusquely in Ecclesiastes 9.4 when he says, Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. It is more eloquently stated in Lamentations 3.22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord's love and mercies are new every morning and they are a gift. And even if you haven't stopped already and are already well into this day, which has been given to you as a gift, it is not too late to stop and remember that today is another gift from God. And what are you going to do with it? When I was a kid, Christmas was a big deal at our house. Eventually, there were four of us boys in the family, and my parents went all out to make sure we had a tree with plenty of presents for each of us. I remember one Christmas, my mother got the idea that we needed a flocked Christmas tree to dress it up some and make it a little more exciting. So she got a flocking kit and went out into the garage and did a pretty professional job of flocking the Christmas tree. Now, I loved it because, unbeknownst to her, I like to slowly loosen the flocking off of the individual needles. I don't know why, but I found that to be so soothing, but, and it was. And she was at the first service this morning, and I made a confession of a 58-year-old sin. Now, there were lean years, too, where money was not so available. And I remember my dad, who worked for the railroad, waiting until Christmas Eve when the unsold trees were going at great discounts, but getting it home in time to make sure we had a tree up and presents around on Christmas morning. And in all of those efforts... And all those presents, I confess, I don't remember very much about the individual items that were given to me over the years, but I do remember the giving and the sacrifice that were made to provide for our joy. How much more should we view this day, this very day that the Lord has given to each and every one of us, a day made for us to live according to His purposes for our lives as a wonderful gift? 
So that's the first thing. Today is God's gift to you and to me. And just as I would anxiously unwrap a present on Christmas Day, I should be unwrapping this day to see all the blessings and the true giftedness of this day as the great gift giver delights to give it to me. Like a parent who finds delight in watching their child excitedly opening what they have given them, God delights in his children enthusiastically unpacking the day that he has made for them. And the second thing I get from the psalmist Hillel is that we should be proactive in two ways that are closely aligned, to rejoice and to be glad in it. These are acts. These are things that we do. There has to be an affirmative movement on our part to both rejoice and be happy in the gift of the day that the Lord has made. Now forgive me for all the personal references in this sermon, but the truth is I don't know anyone nearly as well as I know me, warts and all. But my natural facial expression does not lend itself to being viewed as a happy person, even though inwardly I'm a laugh riot. <laughs> now, that's been true all my life. My mother would tell you, all the time I was growing up at the supper table, she constantly, admo constantly admonished me, smile. And I thought I was smiling. <laughs> I just have one of those kinds of dour faces that does not exude all the joy and charm that is really residing on the inside. Back in 1971, who said amen? Just <laughs> you know, there are times where amens are appropriate and times where... Back in 1971, okay, that's the truth, I admit to it. Back in 1971, during my first week as a new hire with the Internal Revenue Service, there were three of us new hires in the local office, and as part of our training, we had to accompany other revenue officers in the field to observe their interactions with taxpayers. And I remember that first week after being introduced with the other two as new employees of the owner, uh, uh, to an owner of a tow truck company that we were using to seize a vehicle, uh, he looked at me and saying, that guy with the glasses looks like he means business. Now, of course, I took that as high praise for what I was hired to do, but that's just an, my outward visage. But every once in a while, I'll see something that really touches my heart and softens me and feel a surge of happiness starting to well up in me like a good cat video <laughs> or a baby giggling or little puppies chasing their mother and the joy begins to radiate. Uh, about a month ago we were in Hawaii with my son-in-law and daughter and their children and we were out eating one night and unbeknownst to me, uh, Paul and Sarah and Diane were on the other side of the table taking pictures of Jalen and I who were showing each other cat videos and actually, <laughs> somehow Gwen worked that into this, we were actually naturally smiling because neither one of us are great big smilers. So I was in the Panera Bread on the south side here yesterday afternoon drinking coffee and working on this and uh, there was at a table across from me a little girl who I learned was 14 months old who when I sat down, she pointed at me and just giggled wonderfully. <laughs> and she did that over and over again. And it wasn't as annoying as it might sound. I really found it very charming. And uh, I found myself naturally smiling because I was observing this beautiful, innocent uh, child, pure child, who was radiating pure joy. And so uh, I don't mean that Looking at cat videos gives me a killer smile, but there is joy for me in those kinds of things. So what I'm saying is we have to look around us and find those blessings that confirm to us that there is joy to be had in this day 
and that the Lord has made it for us. And if we do, it will change us. And when we talk about joy, there are a few things you need to know about joy. First of all, worldly joy is fickle and temporary. The joy of the systems of this world are a pale imitation of the true joy that only God can give us. The temporary high that you achieve with a good scotch or a hit on some narcotic will fade and leave you lower than before. And it will require ever-increasing dosages of whatever is being used to achieve that high to reach the same level. And I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, especially if you tried to find joy in the past like that. And eventually, it will wreck you physically and spiritually. You don't need that. God has something so much better for you, and it's enduring. And even though the friends that came to visit Job in his distress were, for the most part, dolts, every once in a while they uttered some truth. And one of them says in Job 20, verse 5, The mirth of the wicked is brief. The joy of the godless lasts but for a moment. Secondly, you need to be aware that in the Old Testament, joy was associated with the true worship of God. Our worship should not be dour and sad and forlorn. I have to confess to you, it's unusual and difficult for me to really cut loose in worship. I mean, even holding up my hands. Some of you do that naturally and do it well. But for me, I was raised to walk stiff. I don't wear the white shirt and tie anymore. And maybe one of these days I'll cut loose. But we should be joyful in our praise to our Creator who gave us this day. There was a time in the history of Israel when God was establishing David's kingdom. And the Ark of the Covenant that had been in the presence of the people of Israel from the time of their exit from slavery in Egypt through their journeys in the wilderness uh, and wandering to a, in a trek to a permanent home until the days of David. And David wanted to bring it to Jerusalem. And they attempted a couple of times to do it, but they tried to move it with an ox cart, contrary to how God wanted it to be done. He wanted it done on poles, carried on the shoulders of Levitical, Levitical priests who were ordained for that specific purpose. And when they finally saw their folly, it was transported correctly to Jerusalem, where David had prepared a tent to house it. The king, David, went down with the people and led the procession, bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And he led them with rejoicing. And the scripture says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 14, Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Did you catch that? There was joy in the worship. Now, I would like to dance with all my might in front of you, but you really don't want to see that. And I'm afraid that I would be in traction if I attempted it. But there was joy in their worship. Now, a little while later, in the, as a story, in the story, as the procession makes it to Jerusalem, David's wife, Michael, is observing from a window her husband's behavior as he led the procession. And the scripture says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. She was also raised in the Church of Christ. I'm just kidding. That was in verse 16. Now, why did she despise him? Well, David didn't show the proper dignity as a king. He let his joy get the better of him. So what happens in David's happy home as a result of this? <coughs> verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. 
In other words, the wife was ticked. Now, most of us veteran husbands would cower and say, Yes, dear, I know what came, I don't know what came over me. And we'd go and hide out for a while until the tempest abated. But David is not going to be robbed of his joy. Besides, he had other wives. <laughs> now, listen to his response in verse 21. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. By by these slave girls that you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, as an aside, husbands, don't start fist bumping one another and putting an elbow gently in the side of your wife because we're not the king of Israel. But the point is that David worshipped God with robust joy and he determined he would be joyful and not, not anyone, not even the lovely Michael, rob him of that joy. And the third thing you need to be aware about, uh, joy, is that it also is a gift from God. Joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit who resides in the heart of the believer. Paul, in writing to the church in Galatia in chapter 5 of that letter, says that joy is one of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit that he lists. Joy is also an integral part of the kingdom of God and must exist wherever believers are present. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit says Paul in Romans 14, 17. Fourthly, and this is a difficult one for me to get a handle on, circumstances cannot take away our joy. In 2 Corinthians six ten, the Apostle Paul talks about how he and his companions were sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So joy is not necessarily happiness. Happiness is tried, tied to what is happening to you in the moment. Joy and gladness is about what is going on in you. This means that even when we are in the midst of a situation that legitimately brings us sorrow, our inner joy is never taken away. The very core of our being can still rejoice in the fact that we are forgiven children of God who enjoy an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. Our joy is strengthened when we remember that no matter what the circumstances, God is with us and he is above all. Fifthly, It is sin that can steal our joy. This same King David, who with abandonment and great joy worshipped God without embarrassment or concerns about what others thought of him, also experienced the momentary loss of that same joy when he allowed sin to linger in his life. I've always been fascinated with the character of David and how his story has disrupted my ability to think that I can possibly begin to understand all there is to know about our God. David is described by the prophet Samuel as a man after God's own heart. Those very words. But David had his moment when he committed some pretty detestable acts, right in the midst of being truly blessed by God. You know the story recorded in 2 Samuel 11. David stays at home while his army goes off to war, and he gets insomnia one night, goes out on the roof of his palace to get some air, and while he's out there, he looks down, and sees a beautiful woman bathing. What does this man after God's own heart do? He sends to find out who she is. And he's told that it's Bathsheba and that she is married to one of his soldiers who happens to be fighting with David's armies. As dominoes falling one after the other, David sends messengers to bring her to him. He sleeps with her, but the problem is sleeping is not all they did. 
She goes home and soon finds out she's pregnant. And it has to be David's child because her husband is being a good and loyal soldier for David. So this man, after God's own heart, sends word to his general Joab to send Bathsheba's husband back to David. Of course, you know this was all part of David's grand cover-up scheme. Get Uriah to come back to Jerusalem, ask him some pointless questions like, how is it going, dude? And then send him home so that he can be with his wife. And when the child is born, no one will be the wiser because everyone will assume that Uriah had a happy homecoming. <coughs> what David's plan did not take into account was how honorable and how much integrity Uriah had. Uriah was so humble and honorable, he would not deign to go and enjoy the comforts of home while his comrades in arms were still in the field and couldn't be with their spouses. So he slept in the entrance to the palace. I can almost imagine that when David is told that his plan did not go as he wanted, that he said, and I don't have the precise Hebrew translation, but something like, you've got to be kidding me. So this man, after God's own heart, gave it another attempt. He told Uriah to hang around just one more day and then head back to the field of battle. But this time, David got Uriah drunk, thinking nature will take its course. He'll go home and there won't be any congressional hearing about all this. But even in this inebriated condition, Uriah was more honorable, at least in this moment of time, had more integrity than David, and he again slept in the palace entrance. Now sin gets more entrenched in David's life. He writes a letter to his general Joab, and he seals it, and he sends it back in the hand of Uriah, knowing that this loyal soldier has so much integrity that the contents of the letter will never be violated by him. And the letter says, send Uriah into where the fighting is the fiercest, and then pull back so that he's exposed to the enemy. I have no doubt that when Joab read that letter, he would think, and again, I don't have the precise Hebrew translation, but something equivalent to, what the? <laughs> but Joab is obedient and does precisely what David ordered, and Uriah is killed. Word gets back to Jerusalem, Bathsheba does her little mourning moment and becomes David's wife in short order. The man after God's own heart was kind of messy in getting it done, but the problem solved, right? Think for a moment must have been going through David's mind through that whole process of the sin that kept on growing and growing until finally he had murdered by proxy his loyal soldier to cover up what began as a momentary indiscretion. How much joy do you think was part of David's makeup through that whole process? When he is finally confronted by his, uh, uh, by his sins, by the prophet Nathan, the only way David could begin to recapture any joy that he had previously known by prostrating himself in repentance before God and confessing his sins. <coughs> Excuse me. And he does that. And it's recorded for us in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Now let me stop here for a moment. All of us. All of us who have lived well into adulthood can in some measure identify with what David is here expressing. 
With this confession, David is moving back to that place where he is able to have joy and gladness in God. Continuing, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. When God scans the earth for potential leaders, he is not on a search for angels in the flesh. He is certainly not looking for perfect people since there are none. He is searching for men and women like you and me, mere people made of flesh, but he's also looking for people who share the same qualities he found in David. God is looking for men and women after his own heart. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? It means your life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. When he says, go to the right, you go to the right. When he says, stop that in your life, you stop it. When he says, that is wrong and I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. That's Bottom line, biblical Christianity. What is God looking for? He's looking for men and women whose hearts are His completely. That means there are no locked closets. Nothing's been swept under the rugs. That means when you do wrong, you admit it, you come to terms with it. You long to please Him in your actions. You care deeply about the motivations behind your actions. God is not looking for magnificent specimens of humanity he is looking for deeply spiritual, genuinely humble, honest-to-the-core servants who have integrity. So joy and gladness is a decision. It's a choice. It's a call for our participation in action. Our disposition is a decision. And the gift of this day in which we are rejoicing and glad means we don't have to dwell on what we did in the past. The past is over. We can't change any more than David could change what he did with his sin. Too many of us doubt that God could ever forgive us. If, we could, if he could forgive David for what he did, why would you continue to doubt that he can extend the same quality of mercy to you? Don't let the failings of yesterday rob you of the joy and the gladness that can be yours today. So how do you view this gift of this day now? This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Will you bow with me, please? Holy God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great gift of this day. And Father, as we move through it, we pray, Father, that we will be glad and joyful in it, that we will see those things that are real and substantial that you have given to us. Father, you are our God, and we love you deeply. In your Son's name, amen.